This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rebecca Sofer, who is the co-founder of Modern Loss, which offers creative, meaningful, and encouraging content and community addressing the long arc of grief. She is also the co-author of the book, Modern Loss, Candid Conversation About Grief, Beginner's Welcome from Harper Wave, and it was published in 2018, which the strategist named the best book on loss for a younger generation. She is also the author of the forthcoming The Modern Loss Handbook, an interactive guide through loss and resilience, which will be published in 2021. Rebecca has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, led retreats around the world, and has spoken nationally on loss and resilience from Chicago Ideas Week to HBO and to Amazon. Her writing has appeared all over, from the New York Times to Marie Claire to NBC. Rebecca is a former producer for the Colbert Report and a Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism alumnus. Rebecca, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here this morning. Well, I am so looking forward to discussing your incredible passage that you chose, which is Genesis 50, 15 through 19. So please tell us what happens in Genesis 50, 15 through 19, and why is it significant to you? So it's the story of Joseph. And the part that I want to focus on is the part after their father dies, after Joseph and his brother's father dies. And I think that like, it's generally well known that he and his brothers, you know, they weren't so copacetic. He had a rough go of it. I think he was thrown into a pit beforehand. He went to prison. He sold into slavery. Like he doesn't have like the most, you know, warm and fuzzy history with his brothers. And so I think it's understandable that after their father dies, the brothers are really worried about whether Joseph is going to hold a grudge against them for how they treated him. And so they send him a letter that apparently their father wrote before he dies that says, tell Joseph, forgive us for treating you so harshly and let's just move on. I mean, I don't think that's actually what the Torah says, but that's my, my interpretation of it. That's exactly right. They told Joseph that their father had this parting message, but of course there's no record of their father having that message and he would not have had this message, but this is them in their insecurity upon their father's death, thinking exactly what you said. Now they were going to come and exact their revenge. Right. And so instead, Joseph ends up being forgiving, saying, we're cool. Let's just move on. I'm reassuring you. He spoke kindly to them. All His whole family remained in Egypt. Joseph wins out. He lives until he's 110. So clearly by forgiving, he did something good and positive. And um, they kind of all come together in harmony. For me, what resonates is not like the window dressing of it all. Like clearly, I don't know that I'd want to be a member of Joseph's family. They don't seem very harmonious. I don't think that's the point. The quintessential dysfunctional family. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, let's be honest, you know, when you're thrown into a pit, something's going wrong there. But what really resonates with me is that it just shows that grief is messy and it's complicated. And frequently it brings a lot of messiness together. We all have our burdens. 
we all have our things that we carry through life that make us really fallible. And grief can really kind of provide an invitation for people to come together over these fallibilities, I guess, over these, the things that make us human. And when I think about this passage, it also kind of makes me realize that time and again, you never know what beauty is going to come from loss. You can have the ugliest history with somebody. And when you're grieving the loss of somebody important, it can really create the opportunity to build stronger ties with others. And it can also cause other people to come out of the woodwork for you who you wouldn't have ordinarily anticipated would be coming out to support you. And so that's just my interpretation is just the reminder that like beauty can come out of grief and loss and the complete mess of it. And when we're in those initial throes of grief, it's very hard to see that. Very interesting. And one of the interesting things there is that why did the brothers think that Joseph would use their shared grief as a moment to exact revenge? And quite possibly it's because the whole idea of forgiveness was invented by Joseph. Nobody in the history of the world had ever forgiven anybody. The idea didn't exist in the world before Joseph forgives his brother. You had, as uh, Rabbi Sachs says, you had, and others have said, you have Jacob who confronts Esau and he gives him a lot of things. That's appeasement. He didn't ask Esau for his forgiveness. He said, don't harm me. I'm going to give you these things in exchange for giving you these things. Restrained from violence. That's not forgiveness. No one had ever forgiven anyone. It just wasn't a conflict avoidance strategy or availability at the time, except Joseph invents it. So the brothers don't recognize this as a real thing in the world. Their father dies. They figure, well, now Joseph's coming for us. But as you said, grief has brought them together in the ways that they clearly did not predict. Exactly. And it's to me, it's just, you know, again, like there's a lot of details of this story that don't really, you know, encourage me. But that last part of it is the, just the unexpected love and connection and community that can stem from grief and loss and pain is something that really resonates with me because it's something that I've personally experienced and seen experienced time and again by people around me. And it's just something that's not obvious to people who are really in those first stages of reeling from it. And I always say that I learn better by example than by assurance. And so I'm giving this example, you know, as something that really resonates with me so that people who are listening can kind of be shown and not told. Very interesting. And you're exactly right. I mean, it says here at the end of 5018, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So he's just, uh, Joseph is the great crier of the Bible. I think he cries something like seven times throughout the end of the Joseph sequence, but here he is. Probably why I like him <laughs> as a fellow crier. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he was, he was a very emotionally um, expressive young man and not so young man throughout his whole life, really, particularly as he aged. But so he's, they're speaking to him and he's weeping. And then they respond in 5018, we're ready to be your slaves, which is exactly what he didn't want. He had just forgiven them and they don't, they don't acknowledge it. So when you say that grief brings people together as it clearly does in an unpredictable and messy way as it does here, is this emblematic of how people and peoples come together around grief or is this distinctive? I think that it goes both ways. I think that it would be like very Pollyanna-ish of me to say that grief is harmonious. It brings us together, you know, let's hold hands and kumbaya. But let's be honest, people are complicated. 
people are messed up. We all have our things. So when somebody dies, you're probably going to have an unresolved relationship with that person because very, you know, rarely are things tied up with a perfect bow. And you're going to be grieving alongside others who had their own distinct relationship with that person. And you have your own distinct relationship with the other people. And so grief is messy. You know, like a lot of times there's a lot of strife in grief because even though some people are in the same family. They can all be grieving in completely different ways. One person might be lashing out. The other one might be needing to just like fix his car all day long and not think or talk about it. Another one might do things that aren't so healthy. And another one might turn to meditation and therapy and go like scream from the top of a mountain. And so it's really just about, are people really willing to acknowledge that grief is a very singular and personal experience, but at the same time, remember that it's one of the most universal things, if not one of the only two, like most universal things or three most universal things that we all experience. And when you remember that, you remember that you are kind of in it with that person, just in a different way. And when you remember that, then you can be a little more empathetic and you can remember that like, even though the details of how you're expressing grief are different, it's all coming from love and pain and confusion. And that allows you an invitation to become closer to that person. Grief brings out ugliness in people. We've seen it. We've seen fights over estates. We've seen everything in headlines. But again, in my experience, it also can create the invitation to form really deep and meaningful relationships because you know that those relationships are being built or grown against the backdrop of profound loss. And that just allows you to cut that person a break more. Right. Now, is it predictable how someone's going to respond? Like if you say, okay, to use your example, so so so-and-so dies, one person spends the time fixing his car, another person goes into therapy, another person screams from the mountaintop. Is it predictable which person will have done each of those things? Well, first of all, so I'm not a therapist. So I wouldn't want to give any therapeutic advice. But secondly, I don't think you can predict anything. I don't think you're even going to know yourself how you're going to react when you're faced with any situation. I mean, just think about like some of the periods in life when you were faced with the most adversity. Did you know exactly how you were going to react to that? Could you have predicted? Interesting. Now, the Parsha that you chose where 50, 15, 18 comes from is Parsha Vayahi. And Vayahi means, and he lived. But the whole Parsha is about Jacob's death. So it's very interesting. We have a Parsha about a man's death named And He Lived, suggesting that in the Jewish imagination, we really know how we live by how the people we influence act after we die. So how have you seen in all of your experience in dealing with so many people and helping so many people through their grief, is the experience different when you're like Jacob? He's on his deathbed and he's able to bless each of his children with an extremely thoughtful and enduring blessing, enduring for them and enduring for us. So he knows he's going to die, evidently has plenty of time to consider it and to come up with what we might call a living will and a magnificent one. Other people, of course, die suddenly, totally unexpectedly. How is the experience of grief different in these two circumstances? One being the Jacob circumstance, you have plenty of time to plan exactly how you want to die, and the other being someone who. just die suddenly? I think that's a very good question. I also like to say that that's kind of playing a losing game that you're never going to win because so my mom died suddenly 
my mom was that example that you gave. She died in a car accident when I was 30, about an hour after she dropped me off at my apartment late at night, coming home from our family camping trip in Lake George in the Adirondacks. And she was with my dad and my dad survived the accident. And so I did not get what I would call the benefit, you know, of sitting, you know, at her deathbed and having lots of conversations and remembering good times and trying to ask her every single detail of her life and what she would want, et cetera. My dad also died suddenly. He died from a heart attack. So, you know, you could say, I didn't get to say goodbye to either one of them. But then I went through a period of time where I said, God, I, if only... I guess if they had been sick, if they knew they were dying, at least I could have had this time with them. But now I've met a lot of people who have had that experience of a loved one with a prolonged illness and have had to deal with so much anticipatory grief that is very difficult to go through. It's just like this prolonged pain, right? And then when the person dies, that's like a grief that you know they thought they were prepared for but actually it is different and it is deeper and it does hit them in a different way. And so, yes, like I think that sometimes people do get the benefit when there's a heads up that this is going to happen. They can create wills, they can create living wills, they can have conversations, they can share memories. And like, that is absolutely a benefit, of course. But then you also have a lot of people, and I know this because I run this amazing community. And so I've heard lots of stories about people who say, my brother is ill, my mother is ill, my husband is ill, but they don't want to talk about this stuff. They know they're dying, but they don't want to talk about this stuff. And it's torturing me because I want to talk about all these things and it's hard. So it's really kind of like an apples to oranges scenario. There's no winning. And because also then those people get to see their loved ones suffer. So I can't really answer as to whether one is easier than the other. I just think they're different. Fascinating. At the end of uh, Deuteronomy, of course, Moses is about to die. And in fact, he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. But as he's about to die, there's a description of his death, which speaks to the intentionality of his dying. And Rabbi Norman Lamb, in a characteristically magnificent sermon, said that this language indicates that Moses was treating the act of dying like he treats every other act in his life as an opportunity to do a mitzvah. So what Rabbi Lamb was saying, this is probably in the 60s, what Rabbi Lamb was saying is that Moses was teaching us that you can die well, that you can actually die as a mitzvah. So I'm just really wondering, what do you think of that interpretation? Can one die well? Can one die as a mitzvah? And if one can, how should one do it? I love that too. And I love that you mentioned Moses. You know, I think he lived until uh, 120. And I love that because my parents actually had 120. 120th birthday party together one year because my dad loved that story so much. And I do agree that you can die well. And that is something that is very important to me. I'm pretty sure that we can rarely choose how we exit this world, but we can do a lot of thinking about it. And I think just the act of not being scared to think about it because it's not a contagious thing. Like if you're thinking about your mortality or the mortality of people that you love and you think about like how you want to be remembered in this world and you think about the mark you want to make and like you said, like how your descendants, how the people you leave behind are going to remember you and honor you, what your legacy will be. You know, that is something that should not be scary to you. In fact, 
I think that is something that would naturally want to make you live as fully and as well as possible. So I do, I really encourage the act of thinking about what is like a good death, not just the physical act, like what would I want if I get ill? Like what is my medical directive? I'm somebody who from the age of 30 has been begging people around me to have a will, to think about, you know, do you want a DNR? Like think about all these things that people have said to me, wow, that sounds like so morbid. And my response is, listen, you don't want to wish that your person had this and be faced with wondering what they would want. It's a lot easier to have direction. It's a lot easier to be told what somebody wants to happen and how they want to be remembered and how they want their memorial than, you know, be tortured with wondering if you're making the right choice for them. You're so right on so many levels. One, it is staggering how many people don't have wills. Yeah, everybody should have a will. It's really easy. You can write it on a napkin. Trust me, that was my first version. Right. No, but yeah, it's not that it's complex. It's just a choice to do it or not. It's not like I would like to do it, but it's too hard. It's not too hard. Yeah, you either want to do it or you don't. But I think you're absolutely right that one of the dilemmas that seem to torture people when a loved one is dying is, should we take this extraordinary measure to prolong his or her life? And that can really destroy families. It can cause all kinds of strife within families when it would be much easier if the person, when he or she was able, had just said, do this or don't do this. And then say, hey, we're, we're just following his or her directions. It's pretty simple. That's not simple in an emotional way, but in a what should we do way, he gave us this instruction. It's happening. We're following it. I'll give you an example that doesn't really have to do with like a health directive because both my parents died suddenly and you know, I didn't have any choices to make in that matter. But my dad left behind a will and he was pretty specific about most of it. And I have three half brothers. He was previously married and he wrote in his will, he, there was one very meaningful object that had meaning to everybody. And he did not give explicit directions for what should happen to it. Did he know it was meaningful to everybody? Oh, he knew. <laughs> and I love my dad. In fact, yesterday was his 10th year site. So I've been thinking about him a lot, which is why it makes me happy to remember that 120th birthday party because it was really fun. But he, that was the one beef I had with him after he died was the moment that I read this line in like the details of his will saying, like regarding this piece, figure it out amongst yourselves be nice to each other. And then he wrote, <laughs> be nice to each other or I will haunt you. And while that is legitimately hilarious, I got to give it to him. He's funny. <laughs> it really pissed me off because you don't do that to somebody. You don't do that to people left behind. That makes things more complicated. You know, just like I'm saying, like, if you don't have a specific directive with, do I want to be intubated? Do I want to be prolonged? Like, then you're going to leave the decision to other people and if there are multiple people who are different from each other, then you're really setting up the stage for some major pain. And it's not worth it. Like that's not a loving act to those people. It's very important to have conversations. It's very important. And it's also important to realize that just having the conversation, it's not going to make it happen. It's not a self-fulfilling prophecy that just because you're talking about your own death or an accident or what might happen, that's going to happen. It just means that you're having a conversation and now you don't have to have it anymore because people know what you want. Could the gift that your father was leaving you in that case be his encouragement that you would work it out? I mean, because, you know, we actually often see that, not often, but we do see it in Jewish teaching. I think it's in the Haggadah. It's in the Haggadah in the sense that people ask about the Haggadah, 
how could you tell the Passover story without talking about Moses, Joseph, or the women of the Exodus? Shifra, Pua, Miriam, Nehemiah. How could you do it? The answer is you can't, but the Haggadah is not telling us the whole story. It's a guidebook, but we have to tell the story. So it's saying, go figure it out yourself. Like you have to tell the story with those people included, but figure it out yourself. Similar example is there was a man in Baltimore. His name is uh, Rabbi Weinrib. Great story. And he calls the Rebbe Menachem Shearson. He said he was in his early 30s. He was going through an early midlife crisis with all kinds of angst. And he reaches the Rebbe secretary. The Rebbe says to Weinrib through his secretary, tell him to ask Weinrib in Baltimore. And Weinrib in Baltimore says, but I am Weinrib in Baltimore. Why is he telling him me to ask Weinrib in Baltimore? The Rebbe said, that's the point. At some point, it's like there's a certain wisdom in telling people, you can do this. You can solve this problem yourself. You don't need me to tell you everything. And that, that's what the Rebbe was telling Weinrib in Baltimore. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't think it's the right way to go. I got to be honest. You're also talking about, are you vague with your instructions that are being given to people who are in fresh, new, deep grief? I don't think that's a nice thing to do to someone. That's just my take. And like, this was just about like one silly object, you know, like, so it didn't, you know, (laughs) mess me up for life. But I can tell you that I think that the loving thing to do is to think about what you want to happen with regards to your care. And, you know, if we're going to be talking about wills and belongings, yeah, and those things, and not leave it up for interpretation. I just be as explicit as possible. I do think so. Yeah, I do. I don't think it's fair to leave it up to other people unless you have the conversation in advance with them saying, listen, there are certain things I don't know what I want here. I'd love for you guys to figure it out because I don't know what you want. I think if you have a conversation in advance, great. But to surprise people with choose your own adventure, to me, that's just not like a really kind thing to do. So your advice, if someone wants to die well. And of course, it's impossible to do anything perfectly. So the best we can do is try to die well. We can't die perfectly, even with all the time in the world to plan. But to die well, you're saying be as thoughtful and as explicit as possible. And that incorporates everything from your possessions, which should be reflected in the will, to how you want to handle end of life, which should be reflected in a medical directive. And just be as explicit as possible and do it as soon as possible because you could die at any time. I know it sounds like very, <laughs> very grim reapery, but yeah, you could die at any time, right? I mean, it's just reality. And I think about that a lot. I mean, it's just a fact. And I, listen, I'm somebody, I love laughing. I love feeling alive. I just went sledding yesterday. Like I love being alive. I plan on being alive for a really long time, but I know from very, very unfortunate personal experience that the universe has its own plans for me. And I don't know what they are. And so, yeah, I think that dying well is, is all of those things. I think it's remembering to me, dying well has to do with also just remembering that every day is a loss. Like we're never going to get this moment back. We're losing all day long. It's not just death loss, it's loss. And so to me, that just makes life feel much richer. It makes me appreciate the moment more. It makes me want to take advantage of it more. I can be just a wonderful, like Upper West Side neurotic Jew that sweats the small stuff. It's in my nature. But if I really start spiraling, it's easy for me to bring myself back to that realization, like that reminder that, hey, every day is the loss. Like we're losing every day. Be here now. (laughs) Ram Das. And it helps me live better. And so I do think that that is connected to dying well. Because if you remember your mortality all the time, 
it's not a depressing thing. It's a motivating thing to me. With regard to end of life, like, yeah, I think that there are beautiful deaths that can be had. And I think a lot of that is thinking in, about in advance what you would want. Do you want to die at home? Do you want to die in a hospital? Would you want to go to hospice? You know, these are all things that are worth thinking about. Well, this is so interesting on so many levels. Now, it just really reminds me of another biblical story, which actually related to the one that you chose. So Joseph's father, Jacob, of course, when he goes into exile from his uh, dysfunctional family of origin, he has a famous uh, wrestling match with an angel. And the wrestling match lasts all night, and he emerges victorious, but with a lifelong injury from his hip socket. And uh, he says to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. Thus leading to one of the great Jewish teachings is that we always emerge from a struggle with a blessing. And you've done that so magnificently and that you've struggled so much in the area of grief twice personally, but you've created such a blessing for so many people and helping so many other people uh, both understand grief and live through it with dignity and more ease than they otherwise would have. So thank you for living that biblical principle. That's very kind of you. And I really like that. I, I didn't know that story. So thanks for sharing that. Now, it's a great lesson from Jacob. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. So he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war, and this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest thought about it and said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years of building a community around grief, what are two things you learned about humankind? Oh, I thought you were going to say there's no such thing as a free lunch, because I, I thought that would have been hilarious if that would have been his second answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could actually get a free lunch once in a while if you look. I mean, yeah, that is a thing sometimes, especially around your birthday. What I have learned about mankind, humankind, is that you never know what somebody else is going through. That is something that I've learned very well. And that has really taught me a very important lesson of empathy and like taking a pause before responding sometimes to somebody that we're all in pain. We're all dealing with burdens and some might feel smaller from the outside to others, but it's your own reality. And so it's your own burden. You get to decide like how heavy it feels to you. And I think that like, when you remember that you just really never know what somebody is going through, like, it's like whenever I have an encounter with somebody, and it's just like, really not a good one. I'm like, what's going on there? Like, are they having a bad day? Are they having a bad year? Like what's going on? And so it just makes me like, kind of be a little less viscerally judgmental, and more like, take a breath. I think what you're describing, it's a prescription for compassion. Because if someone is acting inappropriately, and you say, I don't know why he or she's acting this way. Maybe they just suffered a terrible loss. Maybe they just had the worst news ever. The one thing I'm sure of is that I don't know what's going on in their lives and there's something. That kind of humility leads to a certain kind of compassion. You're absolutely right. And I think that another big lesson that I've learned that's connected to lesson number one is that we are so much more similar than we think. We have so much more capacity to connect with each other and build bridges with each other than we think we do. Right now, look at this world. Look at how polarized everything feels. Like, I mean, it really feels like almost irreparably polarized. 
I wish I knew how to fix this country right now. I have no clue. But what I have seen proof of in seven years of nurturing and nourishing the modern lost community, which is full of so many incredible people, but it's full of a lot of people who are very different from each other and who have connected because they've been willing to share their stories in a way that's really raw and candid and vulnerable. And even though those stories may be coming from somebody who thinks a little differently from somebody else, what they say resonates with people who are different from them because it's proof that like we're all dealing like, yes, like we're all different people, but the threads of grief and love are like, we can connect with so many of them, all of them, they're universal. And it's a real community builder. And it is like, it builds compassion, but it also builds like, it creates the ability to really build bridges. And I think I remember Obama talking about it, like that when you hear somebody else's story and it could be somebody who you think you literally have nothing in common with them, after you hear their story, you see them in a different way. You see them as being more similar to you than different. And it opens up your mind and your heart to kind of, you know, maybe listen to them a little more and move closer to each other. And so that is the other big lesson that I've learned. That is grief is excruciating. You know, I don't love experiencing grief. It's very painful, but it cracks us open. And if we allow it to crack us open in good ways as well as bad ways, it can really heal the world. I believe it can. Fascinating. Well, Rebecca, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many topics uh, deriving from this uh, really this great passage of grief and uh, how it leads to the unexpected in Genesis and what it can teach us about both the unexpected and also unifying qualities that grief can provide in our lives. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me and um, have a wonderful, snowy day. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.